Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to 2 Samuel chapter 17, or you can turn there in your app as well. Well, as we get started this morning, I'd like to just uh, give credit where credit is due. A lot of the content you'll hear this morning comes from two commentaries, uh, one by uh, Dale Raff Davies, another by John Woodhouse. Carrie, Jay, and I have been using them through the series, and they are awesome commentaries. And uh, if you notice, my title might remind you of a hip-hop artist song, uh, God's Plan by Drake. I did not steal it from him, but we'll give him credit. At the start of this morning, I want you to think about some phrases or sayings you hear or may use in the midst of chaos or in a trial or during a time of suffering. It was a Tuesday morning. I was heading to art class and our art teacher had the TV on and usually that meant we were going to watch a movie. And I found it strange that the movie looked a lot like a scene from Die Hard. And we're sitting there, and we're like, what are we going to watch? And we asked the teacher, we said, what, what are we watching? And the teacher looks at us, he goes, I have no idea. All of a sudden, over the intercom, the principal comes on and says, all students return to your homeroom immediately. We get to homeroom, and the teacher locks the door. All of a sudden, the teacher's crying. The principal comes over again says the United States of America is under attack. We are living September 11, 2001. We look out the windows and there's police cars all around the school. We're seventh graders, we have no idea what's going on. Principal comes over again and says, all students are dismissed. Parents will come pick you up immediately. I get home and, and, and our babysitter's there and she's watching the TV, she's crying. The World Trade Center has fallen. The Pentagon had been attacked, and our country was under attack. Turmoil, chaos, what was going on? We get to church a couple days later, and during the service, you hear the pastors say, and then after the service, you hear Christians say, God has a plan. That's the phrase you hear a lot in the midst of chaos, isn't it? God has a plan. Where God is working out his plan. During this past year of my life, as many of you know, I lost a friend and I lost my dad to some untimely deaths. And I've been saying that a lot to myself. I've been hearing that quite a bit. God has a plan. We hear this kind of phrase used even now during this time of history, don't we? With COVID cases going back up, the Taliban on the rise, division in our country over politics and vaccines... And to hear those, word, those words, God has a plan, may not seem very comforting, does it? Because we tend to respond to that phrase in one of two ways. We either find it comforting, or we sometimes find it frustrating. And not because we don't find it necessarily to be true, because we don't necessarily see what's going on. And that's the problem with, with God's sovereignty sometimes, isn't it? We can't always see his hands working. We can't always see his plans taking effect. And we can often miss the little glimpses of his providence, his provision, which reveal he is actually executing his plan. But why do we say this phrase, God has a plan, so often 
in the midst of turmoil or chaos or trials? Well, simply because it's true. It is true. And how do we know it's true? Because God's word is faithful to reveal the outworking of his sovereign plan, ultimately for salvation, to us. Our text today gives us a crystal clear insight into God working out his plan when everything seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. If you were to be living in Israel at this time, you would think all is lost. The king David is on the run. His son had just slept with all of his concubines in a tent on the roof in front of Israel. And now they had no idea what to believe. All seemed lost. This is where we find ourselves in the middle of 2 Samuel. God's chosen king, David, his chosen nation, Israel, on the run and in ruins. Where is God's plan in all of this? But before we answer that question this morning, I do want to give you the main point of this text. And then as we're working through the text, I want to give you two sub-points out of it. The main point of this text, if you walk away with anything today, teenagers, if you take a note and then fall asleep, I want you to take this note right here. God works out his plan. God works out his plans. The main point today is that God is working out his plan. Even when it seems like all is lost, God is working out his plan. And believe me, Israel would have been looking at this situation that they're currently in and wondering, what is God's plan in all of this? Well, let's look at it. As we come to this passage, we see a scene where Absalom is receiving counsel from Ahithophel. And remember, Ahithophel is the one in chapter 16 who actually encouraged Absalom to sleep with David's concubines and bring embarrassment upon David. I mean, and, and why did he take that advice? Well, look at chapter 16 again in verse 23. It says this, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was, was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Ahithophel's counsel was equivalent to God's word in the eyes of both Absalom and David. So Ahithophel had Absalom's ear. And so we see right at the beginning of chapter 17, Absalom receiving counsel from Ahithophel. Look at verses 1 through 14 with me in chapter 17. It says this, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Ahithophel lays out a masterful plan that would lead to great con conquest, victory, and political power. It would esteem Absalom to king over all of Israel. There would be no denying he was the powerful king. And Ahithophel? Well, actually, he would have got revenge. He would have got revenge on David for what he did to his granddaughter Bathsheba. 
And you can look at chapter 25 to connect those dots there. This is a political and vengeful move for both Absalom and Ahithophel. They would bring power solely to Absalom. Justice in the eyes of Ahithophel would be served to David. And the kingdom would be united under Absalom. And they would have peace. What more could Absalom want? His most trusted member of his council, whose word is equal to God's in his, in his eyes, gave a brilliant plan. I mean, this is a brilliant plan. Lucky for all of you with hoods. Absalom's hand, th th I mean, this was easy. Ahithophel would do the dirty work. Absalom's hands are clean and now powerful. And all he has to say is just do it. And he's king of Israel without David being there. And he invents Nike at the same time. This is a brilliant plan. Just like those tarps. But there is some doubt, isn't there? Something is not sitting right with Absalom. We are not told what it is, but, that he, but all that he does is he calls upon Hushai for counsel as well. Absalom wants to hear what Hushai has to say. If, now, if you don't remember who Hushai is, if this feels kind of like a new character, he was sent back into Israel by David to spy out Absalom's plans. David knew that he, if, if he had trusted Hushai, Absalom would trust him as well. That's just how it's been working so far. Therefore, David sent him back in. But we're not given insight as to why Absalom actually trusts Hushai for this kind of counsel. There's not really any history of Hushai proving himself, just that he wants to hear Hushai's counsel on this. This is one of those small moments of providence that brings to light God's sovereignty working out his plan. God, through that little seed of doubt, is working out his plan. So Hushai comes in to give his advice, and he starts out pretty bold. Look at verses 5 through 7 with me. It says this, Then Absalom said, Call Hushai, the archai also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, Oh, sorry, we'll stop right there. Verse 7. Hushai is given a distinct advantage here, according to Dale Ralph Davies, because now he knows what Ahithophel had said, and he can just start poking holes in it right away. He doesn't come out and say, well, that Ahithophel is just wrong to say he's wrong in everything. He says, no. He actually starts by saying, in, in a lot of occasions, Ahithophel's right. But in this one, in this moment, he's having a minor lapse of judgment. He, he, he's wrong in this one instance. And he tells him, listen to my plan. I think you'll like it. And what does Hushai do? He goes right after Absalom's ego. Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, now, even now, he has hidden himself as one in, in one of the pits or in some other place. 
And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man who hear, whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. He starts this, this advice, this counsel, by actually building up David in the eyes of Hushai. He starts by telling him how you and everyone else knows that your father is powerful, he's mighty, he's valiant, he's smart, he's noble, and everyone who's, every man who's with him is the same. You know that. He's basically saying you're smarter than that to send the troops to go toe-to-toe with your father. First, he won't be there, and second, the early loss of your soldiers will look really bad on you. Rather, here's a better plan. Look at 11 through 13. It says this, But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we, and we shall drag it into the valley, until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Stop right there. Hushai ends his counsel with stroking Absalom's ego, with the power he will gain by defeating his dad in combat. Hushai is basically telling him, don't, don't let Ahithophel get all this glory. The glory should go to you where it belongs. Unite Israel and lead them against your father so they can see you, the true king who you, for who you are. He runs We'll chase him down. He hides. We will tear every city down stone by stone and show the world you are the king. Now imagine Absalom for a second. Imagine him hearing this. I mean, he has to be having a little cocky smirk on his face. I mean, he's probably trying to hide the pride that's swelling up of him inside. But inside, he's actually standing pretty strong thinking, yeah, this is my time. I am to prove I'm greater than my father. He probably begins to dream of the victory parade and, and all the people praising him. Because you got to remember, this man has an ego. He is full of himself. I mean, earlier chapters describe him as the most beautiful man in Israel. There's no comparison. He's got a full head of hair. Ironic, I have this story. And with political savvy that caused everyone to love him and follow him. And Hushai was stroking that ego like a dog getting his underbelly petted. His leg was kicking. This felt good. This was a good plan. Absalom has two plans here. One plan is political. The other plan is about ego. Ahithophel's plan is about political gain, power, and uniting the kingdom. Hushai's is all about Absalom. He has a choice to make. And so he dismisses Hushai and, gets count and, and, and presents it to the men of Israel. And the decision is unanimous. They will go with Hushai's plan. Why? Well, ultimately, because God is working out his plan here, as we'll see soon. Even if it means to use a bad human plan. 
But also, this is our first sub point. Man's plans are always about man. Man's plan is always about himself. This whole plan presented by Hushai is a plan about Absalom's ego. This is why he loved it. As people, we're attracted to plans that are about ourselves. I mean, it, it can easily seem obvious to us that this is a bad plan presented by Hushai. I mean, Absalom doesn't have much, you know, battling prowess. He's not as good of a warrior as his dad. And he's probably going to lose this. But he doesn't care. It's about his ego. But we do this, don't we? We do this. I mean, think of all the masterful emperors and leaders in history. Most of their demise came from self-absorbed actions and decisions. But those of us, even though we don't have global power, aren't immune to this. We take actions and execute plans that are often always about us. This is the tendency of a sinful heart. We want the fame, authority, power, and glory, and we will follow any plan that helps us get it. And that is exactly what God was banking on. Verse 14 reveals what God was doing this whole time. Look at verse 14 with me. If your Bible's pages aren't too soggy yet. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This has been a part of God's plan the whole time. And this is our second sub-point. This is our second point. God's plans are to fulfill God's promises. God's plans are to fulfill God's promises. If you would read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel straight through, you would have not approached this text with hopelessness. Why? Because you would have known the God of the universe had made a promise to David and that he was going to fulfill it. I mean, you can look, turn back with me or I can just read it to you. A couple different verses and passages that show us this truth. Look at 1 Samuel 28, verse 17 with me. It says this, The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, Saul, and given it to your neighbor, David. The Lord gave it to him, and the Lord would, would have to take it away from him. Look at 2 Samuel 3.18 with me. Where it says this, Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant, David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Absalom and Ahithophel were now enemies. Chapter 5, verse 2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you, David, who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. It was the Lord who anointed him this. And finally, chapter, se chapter 7, verse 16, makes it very clear. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God makes it very clear that nothing is going to diminish his plans and promises made to David. Even that last verse we read explains clearly how it's all going to work out. Because God is going to make it happen. It will be God who establishes David's lineage, not David. And David is God's anointed king, not Absalom. And since Absalom is making a threat towards, God, towards God's chosen king and God's people, his plan 
will be and must be thwarted by God. And ultimately, this is God answering David's prayer, which he prayed in chapter 15, verse 31. It says this, And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is exactly what God does. It may have looked like wisdom to the world, Ahithophel's plan, this was brilliant. But God turned it into foolishness. God is working out his plans. God's plans are about God's promises. And the rest of this chapter is about God accomplishing his plan to establish David and his lineage as king of Israel forever. For Hushai, he had no idea whether or not Absalom had chosen his plan or Ahithophel's. But either way, Absalom was coming for David. So doing his job, he finds Hushai, doing his job, he finds the priests who are a part of David's line of communication in Jerusalem. And they send for Jonathan and Amaz to go and tell David to begin to cross the Jordan and escape from Absalom's plan, whichever may be chosen. The author then adds two little stories, which we won't go too, too in detail of them, but we'll look at them a little bit. They might seem a little extra to us, but they're very important to seeing God's providence and sovereignty in this. The first story is the mission impossible adventure of Jonathan and Amaz. They go on to, to they go they go on and it almost compromises the whole plan. They are the two spies for David that give him the intel of what is going on, and this is probably the most important intel they've ever had. They are usually able to escape the city pretty easy, but this time they're getting caught. They are spotted gathering intel from the unnamed servant girl who doesn't seem super suspicious, except for the fact that she's communicating with these two near the edge of the city. So Absalom catches wind of this, sends, a guard, sends guards after them. They're trying to leave the city when all hope starts to seem lost. They are going to get caught. They come upon a well in a man's courtyard, and they hide in it. And the woman thinks to hide them and cover it. And then she tells a lie to send them on a wild goose chase. This is God's providence. This is his sovereignty executing his plan. Does this not remind you a little bit of Rahab the prostitute? Who lies to protect Israel's spies and be delivered from their enemies? This is God working out his plan. They deliver the message safely to David. And he's able to cross the door and be safe from Absalom's attack. While this is taking place, Ahithophel has recognized that uh, which plan Absalom has chose, and it was not his. He chose to go with Hushai's plan, and Ahithophel knew it would lead to Absalom's destruction. This is why the author chose to add this. This is the answer to David's prayer, to thwart Ahithophel's counsel. And how does he do it? He eliminates it. Ahithophel takes his own life, for he knew that when Absalom's plan failed, he was most likely going to get executed with, the, with Absalom himself for advising against the king. I mean, look at the detail in his death here real quick. We'll look at this quickly. Verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. This is the answer to David's prayer. And Ahithophel, if you look at the detail in this, 
He died the way he operated most of his life, a well-executed plan. And they honored him by being buried with his fathers. But finally, we see Absalom and, and Israel's men uh, cross over the Jordan to try to execute Hushai's plan. But to their surprise, David and his people were gone. The plan had been ruined. David was safely in uh, Mahanaim, a city that was once hostile to David, now received him with shelter and provisions in his time of need. God was working out his plan. God had led David to a place that was once his enemy, but now his ally. The people who had been following the king were hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And God provided for them once again. Does this story not have some clear parallels to Israel's history to this point? They were wandering in the desert, the wilderness. They were hungry and in need. And God provided for them again and again and again. God provided food. He provided shelter for spies and an ally in Rahab and this woman. And God provided a plan to cross the Jordan that sounded crazy. This, again, is God working out his plan to bring salvation in the life of his chosen people. This is God working out his promise made to his chosen king to have him on the throne forever. The plan may look and sound crazy, but it is the God of the universe, of Israel, of David, who is working out this plan, and it is good. God's plan often looks foolish to the eyes of people. It looks like complete and utter chaos sometimes, and often may seem wrong when laid out before us. Now you might be thinking, well, if I saw God's plan, I'd understand. It would make sense to me. Would it? Let's look at Peter for a second. The chief disciple, the one who Jesus said he would build his church upon. He had Jesus' perfect plan laid out before him. And let's look at his response in Matthew 16, 21 through 23. You can turn there or I can just read it for you. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, who had just confessed he was the Christ, by the way, that Jesus was the Christ, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, the one who goes on to write epistles to the church and be a rock in which God builds his church upon, cannot wrap his mind around God's plan. Because it seemed like utter foolishness. But this is exactly what needed to happen. Christ needed to come to earth, needed to be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, please the wrath of God, which mankind could never do, all simply to die a criminal's death in the most humiliating way possible on a tree which was known as a curse. Why? Because this was part of the plan. This is how God's promise to David is fulfilled. How? Because that member of David's lineage would rise three days later to never taste death again, to show the world that God's chosen king is king over all creation. He's the conqueror of sin and death and will sit on the throne for eternity. This plan that seemed foolish in the eyes of Peter which would go against all the wisdom of the world to conquer something, 
is the perfect plan that God has in place to bring salvation into the world. In line with that, you, you know another phrase that sometimes gets thrown around a lot in the midst of chaos, crisis, and tragedy is that Christ is still king. And that phrase, though true, can also be just as frustrating as God has a plan. But you want to know something really powerful? You put them together, those phrases, and you have the greatest truth one could ever hear. God works out his plan to make Christ king. God's chosen king will forever sit on the throne because that is his perfect plan. When crisis hits, when all around us seems like things are going crazy, God's plan is to have Christ as king and make him known. Maybe, maybe for you right now, the chaos and everything is politics. Rights seem to be going. The courts aren't ruling the way we want them to at times. Policies are too strict or not strict enough. And you're simply asking, what's God's plan in this? And how does this make Christ known as king? Maybe it's not politics for you. Maybe, maybe for some of us, it seems like the world's division, our culture's division, is beginning to hit the church and your family. There's divide over masks and vaccines, and you're seeing it affect brothers and sisters in the faith and those who sit at your dinner table, and you're deeply discouraged. What's God's plan in all this? And how does this make Christ known as king? Or maybe it's even more personal than that. Your marriage is suffering. Your kids are rebelling. And death has been way too present in your life. Which I felt that one very much this year. What's God's plan in all that? And how does that make Christ known as King? Sometimes you feel like you can't see what God is doing. You ask, how is he present in all of this? How is he working out any of this for good? And what does it have to do with making Christ king? I think there's two questions we have to ask ourselves when we're going through things like this. First, God, what are you teaching me in this great plan of yours that I might be missing? What are you teaching me? And second, what is my part in making your king known in the world. Because that is his ultimate plan, isn't it? And he wants to use us in it, even if it looks foolish. As 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were no, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts in the lord who the one who boasts boasts in the lord just a carpenter's son in the eyes of the world seemed pretty foolish to say he would be god's chosen king 
but God works out his plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your plan. We thank you that we know the end result in Christ. We love you and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Proclaiming Christ as King today. And in our lives as we offer it as, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him.
receive the benediction from the Lord who makes promises and always keeps his promises. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. And that concludes our service, and come and find me if you'd like.